What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I got so many things to tell you. There's so many things going on. But first, I just want to say you're in for a treat. This really is a fantastic episode. It's on a subject that is just incredible and one that when I learned about it and read about it and dug into it, it made so much sense in my life and things I've done. So we'll get into that in a moment. However, I do want to say this episode was actually recorded a while ago. I'm not quite sure why we're waiting till now to air it. Sometimes we have a schedule and this one got lost, surprisingly, because it was uh, one that I really enjoyed. So some of the things we know, like his book coming out, it's it's already come out, um, so the timing might not be perfect, but the message is still very much up to date. And when I say a long time ago, you know, maybe a couple, I don't know, six months ago or so. Also, the sound is just slightly different. Um, we always continue to upgrade our equipment and so I think now we have just a little bit better sound. And also, lastly, but perhaps most importantly, it probably wouldn't affect you, but many of you may have noticed our podcast not downloading correctly recently. Maybe you just got an influx of three or four of the past episodes. Essentially, our feed broke. The thing that tells many of your podcast players to, to download our episode, that feed got screwed up. We don't know how. It was kind of in the back end near the server. I don't know. John's been working his butt off, but we got it fixed. And it was really scary because we lost like 80% of our listeners for about three or four weeks. And we've spent kind of five years building this community and really enjoying 
reaching the numbers that we reach and to see that cut by such drastic numbers was really stressful and it made me realize how much I appreciate this show and you guys listening and the ability to kind of touch the world on a global level with these messages from incredible people. And so I just wanted to say it should be fixed. If you need to resubscribe or something, if if all of the episodes aren't showing up, please do that. And also, it reminded me that we need to make sure we're connected somewhere else other than just this RSS feed. So if for some odd reason something like this were to happen again, we could warn you. And that's at our newsletter, which you can sign up for at smartpeoplepodcast.com. We rarely send out newsletters, maybe once every six weeks. Sometimes we get aggressive, sometimes we don't. And our open rate is about 50%. Just goes to show you, which is an insane number. Just goes to show you when we do send stuff out, people want to get it because it's not spammy or salesy or anything like that. So please sign up for that. And actually, with that in mind, I'll be sending out a newsletter hopefully tomorrow announcing a few things. You'll want to get that newsletter because I have some inside knowledge on the next podcast episode that you guys probably want to hear. But also I want to announce the winners of our last contest, which it's my fault that we haven't done this already. But again, we're having all these issues with the core of our business that we wanted to make sure we got those settled. So I'm going to very quickly announce the winners of the motivators assessment. If you listen to the what motivates you episode, we were giving away 10 free assessments. I think it was a $40 value per assessment. So quickly, here are the winners. Ashley Moody, Joe Beaton, Melissa DeFalco, Lee Snow, Oscar Verge, Jamie Kirshner, Jerry Wheat, Jason Allen, Polly Mitchell Guthrie, and Rowena Lizell. Feel free to email me at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com and you can claim your prize. I'll also be sending out winners via our next newsletter. All right, so this is already a longer intro than we like, but like I said, a lot to cover. This week, we are interviewing Stephen Kotler. Stephen is the author of a number of books. The one we're discussing primarily is The Rise of Superman. And The Rise of Superman, incredible book, and it's all about flow states. Essentially, flow is an optimal state in which humans perform and feel their best. You know, when time kind of flies by, you don't recognize what's going on because you're so focused, heightened awareness. I'm not going to go into it too much because we spend the entire interview covering it. But it is just such a fascinating subject. Stephen is, as I mentioned, a best-selling author, journalist, and entrepreneur. His articles have appeared in over 70 publications, including New York Times, LA Times, Wired, GQ, etc. He's perhaps best known for his nonfiction books, including the New York Times bestsellers Abundance, A Small Fury Prayer, West of Jesus, and Bold. He is also the co-founder and director of research for the Flow Genome Project, which, if you like this episode, absolutely go check that out. It's at flowgenomeproject.co. All right, let's turn it over to the conversation with Stephen Kotler about Flow and his amazing book, The Rise of Superman. Stephen, thank you so much for being on the show. I, I know you and I have been talking for about 20 minutes and you gave me some amazing insight on writing in general. So I know I'm going to have to have you back on to go over that. 
Um, and then there was, there was something else there that I want to talk about, which is your animal sanctuary. Just to give everybody a background, you, you're uh, a best-selling author. The Rise of Superman is a book on flow, which I want to talk about. And then you are about to actually today re-release Abundance. The future is better than you think. Um, are those the main things you have going on in your world right now? Well, I also leave tomorrow. Uh, Dave Asprey's uh, Bulletproof Biohacking Conference is this week, and uh, he's going to be on the show. Flow is at the center of this this year's biohacking conference, and our uh, my organization, the Flow Genome Project, we have been secretly, you know, building what we're calling Flow Dojos. These are dedicated flow research and training facilities, sort of built out of very high tech biohacking uh, technology and sort of extreme playground equipment. Wow. Um, combined together, and we're debuting uh, the world's first flow dojo at uh, his conference uh, this weekend. So, oh my God, where um, is that? It's in an, at Pasadena Convention Center. Gosh, that's I wish I was going there. I love. Uh, yeah, we're actually going to have him on the show. I'm a huge fan of Bulletproof, and I can't wait for his book to come out in a, in a couple months. Actually, yeah, it's going to be great. Um, but and so before we kind of get into all that, because flow is something that our listeners have heard me talk about a number of times. But um, I, I want to talk about this animal sanctuary because it was something I didn't know. But given that the podcast revolves a lot around kind of finding your niche in the world, doing what makes you happy, making career out of it. Uh, I know writing is a passion of yours, but you said, you know what, it was time to get away kind of from humans for a little bit and go into this. So what triggered that? Give me a little lead up to your animal sanctuary. Well, there were a lot of things going on. Um, I, as I told you, I was running a different nonprofit. I'm a big believer in service. I think service should be a part of everybody's life. You should always be giving back. And I like frontline service. I think, I think that there's something about that that's important. And I was, I was working with inner city school kids. We were teaching them how to be sports writers as, a, as kind of literacy as a ticket out of the ghetto. It's with the LA Lakers and Dave Eggers organization. It was fantastic, except I I'm a terrible teacher, uh, especially of teenagers. If you put me in front of teenagers, I am either a teenager or I'm some kind of arrogant bastard. <laughs> and I could never find the middle ground. And, you know, concurrently with all this, I, you know, as a journalist, I covered science. I covered extreme sports, but I also covered a lot of ecology and nature issues. It's always been my thing. Animals, biodiversity, all that stuff. I love it. Even, you know, a lot of the ideas in abundance, Peter and I sort of split a lot of the ideas and he brought in, um, more of the humanitarian-focused technologies, but the stuff on water, the stuff on food, these are things I had been looking at for a really long time because I had been trying to solve biodiversity issues. Anyways, long story, I was kind of sick of working with humans. I had kept taking these outrageous trips where I would go to Africa and work with a primatologist and live by a river and spend three months studying monkeys or, or whatever, and I was like, you know, I want, to, I want to be working more with animals, and I wanted to... I felt like I wanted to bring the sanctuary. I wanted to establish a sanctuary because I wanted to bring the service component into like my core life. I felt it was better to be uncomfortable on a daily basis than a couple times a week have to like drive across town, interrupt my schedule, and have these massive disruptions running this other kind of nonprofit. So that was the first of it. And the second one of it, which I think speaks more to your audience, is I was 40 years old. I was living in Los Angeles, and I my days had started repeating themselves. Like I would know kind of in the morning, I'd look at my schedule and I'd go, God, you know, I know what today's going to feel like, I know what it's going to look like. I know what the conversations are going to sound like. And I wanted the second half of my life. I loved the first half of my life, but I wanted the second half to be completely different. So I, you know, got married, moved to the middle of nowhere and opened an animal sanctuary. 
You know, when you said that, my first job, I worked in finance for four years and eventually so much stress drove me out of it. But it was because I knew everything that was going to happen that day before it happened. And I realized this can't be my existence. And so kind of the walls started caving in and there was this sense of being trapped until I just said, you know, it's time to get out. It's time to make something happen. And I love, I mean, it's exactly what you did. And you said, let's do something different, something I enjoy. And, you know, what, what did it feel like once you got out there? Well, I wrote a book about it, Small Furry Prayer. Um, it was, I mean, it was insane. <laughs> we, we, I moved from, you know, we, we, it wasn't a normal animal sanctuary. We decided we wanted to work in very rural, very poor uh, New Mexico uh, for a lot of reasons, mainly because other people didn't want to do it. We wanted to work with special needs dogs and hospice care dogs because nobody was doing it. So we, we, we bit off a huge chunk and, you know, I had lived all over the place, but I lived primarily in cities other than in ski mountains. Um, and to move to, you know, Chamayo, New Mexico, this farming town in the mountains, 2000 people coming from Los Angeles. It was insane. <laughs> and that it took, it took a while. Uh, it took a while. We got our, we got our butts kicked for a good couple <laughs> of years. I won't lie to you. Um, for sure. Uh, it was, and we also moved, you know, right at the height of the recession. Hmm. So, right. I, we moved and two months later, the bottom dropped out on the world and, you know, I was in the middle of nowhere. It was, it was quite an adventure. It was a lot of fun. Well, for a writer that I'm sure that it was some good fodder, you know, some good kindling for your fire at some point. I small furry prayer got nominated for a Pulitzer and it was, you know, it's honestly, it's not because of the writing. It's because of the ass kicking we took yes. along the way. I love it. You know what? That's such a good lesson. It's one, of one thing that I've learned in 10 years of kind of forcing change is if you look at it as just a chance for something different, even if you, if you want to move and you end up moving for one year and then moving back, that's a different experience than you will get, you know, if you maintain the status quo and it will only help you grow as a human. It's also, I mean, for reasons that we'll get to in a second, it's fundamental for flow. It really is. I mean, first of all, um, altruism is fundamental for flow. There's a flow-based, uh, there's an altruism-based flow state known as helper's high. It was discovered by big brother, big sister founder, Alan Lukes back in the 90s. So one of the things about, you know, A, we use flow as part of our healing methodology with the dogs. I can speak to that later if you want. But um, it, B, there's, you know, Altruism is a flow trigger, and if you're a flow junkie, as I am, you want everything in your life to produce flow. So, you know, I moved to the mountains because there's better action sports here, there's better quiet for writing, and I could do better work with the animals. They're all flow triggers. Absolutely. Well, yeah, let's let's jump into flow, and, and as we mentioned, that is what you covered in your book, The Rise of Superman. I'm a huge fan of flow. I believe – I didn't – the only thing I knew – uh, that I achieved flow in was sports prior to podcasting. Once I started podcasting and talking to people for that 40 minutes that I'm on these calls, I actually don't even know what's going on. Time stops the typical flow state. So first, could you tell us uh, what is flow? Sure. So, right. Lots of people have lots of different words for flow. Being in the zone, runner's high. If you're a beatnik jazz musician, you called it being in the pocket. If you're a basketball player, you call it being unconscious. Stand-up comedians call it the forever box, right? Flow is a technical term, um, and we can talk about why in a second, but it's this term scientists prefer, and it's technically defined as an optimal state of consciousness, a state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. And I think most people have had you know, some experience with flow, right? Flow are those moments of total absorption when you get so sucked in by the task at hand 
that your sense of self, your sense of self-consciousness, they disappear completely. Time dilates, which is a fancy way of saying it passes strangely. Sometimes five hours will go by in like five minutes. Sometimes it slows down. You get that freeze frame effect like you were in a car crash or if you're watching The Matrix. And throughout all aspects of performance, that's mental and physical, go through the roof. Well, what I'm really interested in is if you can, because I know you cover this in the book, talk about the science behind it, because there have been moments, I have a terrible memory, but because I played sports my whole life, there are moments that I could relive any second if I want to. I just kind of close my eyes and be like, like very specific, that double play, that home run, that pitch. So I'd like to know what was going on in my brain while I'm experiencing flow. So I'll speak to... Uh, I'll speak to uh, what's going on in your brain first, and then we can talk about uh, what memory, because there are very specific reasons you can remember those that double play, et cetera, et cetera. So normally, if you want to talk about what's going on in the brain during flow, you've got to talk about three things. Neural anatomy, which is where something is taking place, neuroelectricity, and neurochemistry, which are the two ways the brain sends signals, right? We're going to leave neuroelectricity out of the, out of the equation um, just because it's, it's very complicated. Um, the old idea about ultimate performance flow was, um, and I'm sure it's familiar to most of your listeners, they call it the 10% brain myth. It's this idea that, hey, we only use 10% of our brain normally, so ultimate performance, aka flow, must be all of our brain totally on overdrive, right? Turns out we had it exactly backwards. Instead of parts of the brain becoming hyperactive in flow, they're actually doing the opposite. They're deactivating. The technical term for this is transient, meaning temporary, hypofrontality. Hypo is H-Y-P-O. It's the opposite of hyper. It means to slow down, to shut down, to deactivate. Frontality is your prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain right behind your forehead that houses all of your higher cognitive function, your executive function, your sense of will, your sense of self, your morality, your ability to do complex decision-making. All of that's prefrontal cortex. That shuts off during flow. So why, for example, does time pass so strangely? Because time, it turns out, is calculated all over the prefrontal cortex. Parts of it start to wink out. We can no longer separate past from present from future. And we're plunged into what psychologists call the deep now. So that's part of it. Now let's talk about neurochemistry, and we'll get to your, your memory question. Simultaneously with parts of your prefrontal cortex turning off, your brain is also being flooded with five of the pot most potent neurochemicals that can be produced. All of these are performance-enhancing chemicals, right? They're also reward drugs. They're the five most potent pleasure chemicals the brain can produce, which is why flow is considered one of the most addictive states on Earth. Or, you know, scientists, again, don't like the word addictive, so they use autotelic. It means an end in itself. What that means is once an experience starts producing flow, we will go extraordinarily far out of our way to get more of it. This happens because of these really potent neurochemicals that get dumped in your brain. Now, one of the other things that happens in flow is the learning is incredibly, incredibly heightened. So just to put some numbers around it so you know what I'm talking about, in studies run by the U.S. military, snipers in flow learn 200 to 500% faster than normal. The point here is 200 to 500% more learning. That's Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours to mastery cut in half. Now, why does that happen? happens because besides enhancing performance and motivation and all this stuff that the neurochemicals do, neurochemicals exist to tag experiences. They're really big neon signs that say important, save for later, right? The more neurochemicals that show up during the experience, the better chance the experience moves from short-term holding into long-term storage. 
flow because this this huge neurochemical dump moves everything into long-term storage. It greatly amplifies learning, which is why you can remember every moment of that double play. Mm. I can tell you, by the way, my first deep flow state, I was 13 years old. I was skiing. I can tell you where I was skiing. I can tell you what I was wearing. I can tell you what my best friend who was behind me was wearing. I was attra- There was a girl in school who I liked, and she was on the chairlift. I can tell you what she was wearing. I bet you could. Here's the thing, right? I Again, I could say all the reasons why I believe in flow, why I love flow. But for those listeners out there, you know, we try to cover, obviously, Thrive is the topic. But uh, we're trying to talk about how to incorporate more of yourself into your life, you know, doing things on purpose, that career on purpose. Have you, did you study any ways or did you come across anything unique when you were working with these athletes on how we can seek out flow, how we can utilize it to uh, enhance our lives and also perhaps enhance our careers? Well, let me back up and, and kind of just give people a second of background on the athletes that you're talking about. Good, good point. Good point. In Rise of Superman, I focus on action and adventure sport athletes. So the best of the best in surfing, skiing, rock climbing, snowboarding, downhill mountain biking, et cetera, et cetera. Why I focus on these people is they have become the very best flow hackers on earth. And what that looks like in the real world is if you go back and look over the past 25 years in action and adventure sports, you see nearly exponential growth in what's called ultimate human performance. Ultimate human performance is performance when life or limb is on the line, right? It should be the slowest growth category, but that's not what we see at all. None of this makes any sense, right? Nothing like this has ever happened before. Sports progression is slow. It's steady. It's governed by the laws of evolution. At no point in history does it quintuple in a decade except in action and adventure sports. And let me give you just one simple example. Surfing is a thousand-year-old sport. From 400 AD to 1996, the biggest wave anybody has ever surfed. is 25 feet. Above that, surfers, scientists believe it's impossible. There are physics papers written about how it's impossible to surf a wave over 25 feet. Today, surfers are pushing into waves that are over 100 feet tall. That's what ultimate human performance looks like in the real world. That's what this growth spurt looks like. That's what flow makes possible. So what is so cool from a research standpoint about these athletes is they literally cannot perform at the level they're performing without being in flow. It's a core requisite for what they're doing. Without flow, I mean, we interviewed you know, a thousand of them over, over a long period of time. All of them said the same thing. Without flow, 98% of the time, um, if they're not in a flow state and they're trying to do something crazy, they're going to the hospital or they're going home in a body bag. So this gave us researchers something amazing to work with because over the past 25 years, while this has been going on in action and adventure sports, we've had a brain science revolution, right? There's all kinds of cool neural technologies that allow us to peer farther into the brain than ever before. And you combine these technologies with a data set, the athletes who we know are in flow, no more subjective questionnaires. We don't have to wonder. We know because they're still alive. Suddenly, we could start working backwards to the question you got to, which is, hey, how do I get more of this? We could decode what these were athletes were doing to hack flow so successfully and apply this information across all domains in society. So that's why you know, we've been looking at the athletes. And what we realized is, among other things, and this isn't all our research. A lot of this has been done by a lot of other people. But there are now known to be 17 flow triggers. These are preconditions that produce more flow. And we could talk about them more specifically in a second, but the first thing you need to know 
flow follows focus. It is always a present tense affair. It only takes place when our attention is totally focused on the now, in this moment. All 17 of these triggers are ways of driving attention into the now. To put it more formally, these are the ways that evolution shaped our brain to pay attention to the present moment. Now let's take a break for a moment from our sponsor this week. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com, the only learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, visit lynda.com slash smart people. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash smart people. Lynda.com is for you. For listeners of this show, it's the problem solvers, the curious, people who want to make things happen. Maybe you want to master Excel, learn how to negotiate, build that new website, or boost your Photoshop skills. Go to lynda.com and feed your curious mind. There's a few courses I really recommend on there, one being Growth Hacking Fundamentals. Another new one I just checked out is Learning to Be Assertive and Going Paperless Start to Finish. There's so many benefits to a lynda.com membership, such as watching and learning from top experts, streaming thousands of videos on demand, and learning at your own pace. Your lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics, anything you can think of, all for one flat rate. Whether you're looking to become an industry expert, you're passionate about a hobby, or you just want to try something new, I want you to visit lynda.com slash smart people and sign up for a free 10-day trial. It's free. Why not? That's l-y-n-d-a dot com slash smart people. Now back to the show. Wow. You know, that's a really elegant way that, and I've read a lot of the, you know, I've read the book Flow, um, and and I... I don't think I ever heard it put like that. And the and I love it because flow follows focus. One of the things I noticed is you can find flow in a lot of places and you probably already do, but you don't notice it. And for example, even when I was working in finance, the days that I would enjoy the most, um, I now know was because I was in flow. Even if it was something like a, a detailed spreadsheet, that doesn't sound that great. But at the end of the day, you, you have created something that took a lot of focus, a lot of skill, years of practicing. And, you know, the day goes by quick, those neurotransmitters and all that you were talking about get released. So I think, uh, you know, finding those flow states and incorporating them into your lives is so important and it's due to this focus. So I kind of wanted to talk about some of the flow triggers. I know my favorite that I learned about was the creativity trigger. So I was hoping we could jump into that a little bit. We can. I want to back up and just touch on something couple things you said, and then we'll go right into that. Yeah, great. They're, they're, I think they're important. They're helpful here. The two things that, that you should know is, first of all, flow is a spectrum experience. So it's like any emotion. Take anger, right? You can be a little bit mildly irked, or you can be homicidally murderous. It's the same emotion. It's just a spectrum, right? Flow is the same thing. There are 10 psychological characteristics that define flow. The merger of action and awareness, the vanishing of self, time dilation goes on and on. You can have a couple of these. They can show up, you know, you're very focused in the present moment, action and awareness start to merge, time passes really quickly, right? That's micro flow. Or you can have all 10 of these things show up at once and it's often mistaken for like a quasi mystical experience. It's very deeply, deeply, deeply profound when all 10 show up at once. But Anywhere in between you're still in flow and to your point about working in finance, what we know from research is that most people 
spend about 5%, just normally on average, about 5% of their work life in flow. Oh, wow. Just happens automatically kind of. And interestingly, earlier you mentioned getting into flow a lot in podcasts. And we'll talk about the triggers a little bit and probably drill down underneath that. But interestingly, Miha Csikszentmihalyi, who's kind of the godfather of flow psychology, he ran the University of Chicago psychology department and did some of the earliest flow studies. He's the person who figured out, by the way, that the happiest people on earth are the people with the most flow in their lives, right? He, mm-hmm. he did a lot of that early work on flow and well-being. His research, he found that one of the highest instances of flow is in conversation among middle managers at work. And it's, it's so... Some of the flow triggers we're going to talk about, <laughs> risk is a flow trigger. Um, a couple other are social flow triggers. It just so happens that when middle managers talk, a lot of these preconditions, these flow triggers are kind of there in the background. Same thing with podcasts, by the way. The same triggers are showing up when you're doing podcasts, and that's, that's what's pulling you in. But now that we've done all that, let's talk about the creativity trigger. All right. The creativity <laughs> trigger is really interesting. Um, because it tells us a bunch of things about creativity that we didn't know. We used to believe that creativity, you know, really great intuitive ideas kind of popped out of nowhere, right? This was this idea that, oh, the idea popped into my head out of nowhere. I don't know where it came from. It's amazing. Well, it turns out it comes from somewhere. And we now know that creativity is fundamentally recombinatory. It's the product of new information bumping into old ideas to create something startlingly new, right? That bumping into old ideas. When you look under the hood of that, what you're actually seeing is pattern recognition, the linking together of ideas. Now, whenever we link together ideas, a little bit of dopamine is released. And I'm sure most of your listeners have some familiarity here. If you've ever done a crossword puzzle or Sudoku, you get something, an answer right, get that tiny little rush of pleasure. Well, that's dopamine. What's cool about dopamine is dopamine not only shows up when we get pattern recognition. Pattern recognition is actually what's under the hood of the creative trigger, right? That's what you're trying to do is find ways to link ideas together. And there are better ways and worse ways to do this. Um, But one of the cool things that happens with flow is dopamine, which gets released when there's pattern recognition, does something else in the brain. It lowers signal-to-noise ratios, which is a fancy way of saying it increases pattern recognition, which is why creative ideas spiral, right? You get one idea and it leads to another, it leads to another, it leads to another. That's dopamine actually tuning your brain for that, that burst of creativity, right? It's the pattern recognition system. And we were talking earlier. Um, we do an exercise at the Flow Genome Project called the MacGyver Method just to, so people can get a sense of how Power, pattern recognition is essentially what the brain does at its most fundamental level. One of the reasons flow jacks up mental skills so high is because it helps amplify pattern recognition. And most people don't actually realize they have a giant pattern recognition system for a brain. And there's an exercise. I do it as a writer, but it's now being taught. It's called the MacGyver method. And Lee Slodoff, who's the creator of MacGyver, came up with this. And MacGyver became globally popular because it was nonviolent problem solving. And Lee um, got really curious about like, why is this happening? What, like, why is MacGyver so popular? What's under the hood of problem solving? And he, so he went looking and he discovered that, you know, there's a pattern recognition system and there's a way to work with it. And he's created in now experiments have been run, but here's basically how it, how it goes. If you, I do it at the end of every writing session, I'm done writing. And I, the next morning to kickstart my writing again, I need a good idea. So I probably have questions. So I will sit down and I will hand write out the questions. It will be like, I need to start chapter seven tomorrow morning. I'd like it to be funny. 
pithy, a thousand words long, and you know, have something to say about bacon and free weights or whatever, <laughs> right? Doesn't matter. But it, it, so the, the trick here is you have to write it. You need the link between kind of motion and brain um, that does something funky, and then you have to forget about it. So you, you write down your questions, and then you put it aside, and you, you want to do an activity that will take your mind off the problem but not exhaust you. So work in the garden, build a model airplane, go for a long walk. The only thing you really don't want to do is watch television because hmm. television will screw up your brain waves in a way that won't allow this to happen. But you take your mind off the project, you know, let six, eight hours go by and then sit back down and start writing and literally start writing and say, okay, the answer to my problem is, and just, and within five minutes of free writing, your answer will pop up onto the page and it's almost automatic. I've never seen it fail in my life. Um, and it's, people have run experiments on it. It works really, really well. It's a great creativity hack. It's a great flow hack because that process will kickstart. You know, you'll get that first bit of pattern recognition when you're writing and some of the answer pops up, it's going to show up with a little dopamine. It's a nice kick in, but that's sort of what the creative trigger looks like under the hood. That's amazing because it's such a useful tool that people can try out right now. I'm actually going to do it tonight. I have a number of things already that I'm thinking about. And I also realized uh, recently in my life, writing things down allows me to get them out of my brain, get me out of that anxiety or fear or judgment because I can put them there and say, hey, I can return to that whenever I want because it's written down. I have, I actually have a uh, like a push pin board with just uh, like post-it notes of stuff that I just said, I want to get this out of my head. And as you were mentioning that link between writing it down in your brain, I, I, there's something there that's just cleansing almost and, well, and helps me. I mean, you're, 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 you're dead on. You have to remember that writing, first of all, it's an old technology, right? We've been, we've, we've been writing for a little while now and it's an external memory. It's an external hard drive, right? And the brain <laughs> yeah. treats it that way, right? When you write it down and get it out, that's what you're doing. You are saying, okay, wait, I've got this external hard drive. It's called paper and I'm going to store something over here. And you are literally lowering your anxiety. It's not, it's not a figurative thing, but you're, you're literally going to, you know, slow down amygdala function and calm yourself down a little bit. That I, you just blew my mind with the external hard drive. I, I, I mean, maybe other people are like, duh, but this is a very recent occurrence because there were so many things. When I really got into this content creation um, area of my life with podcasting and writing and trying to build businesses, it just got overwhelming. And I said, I got to do something. And I felt like writing it and putting it away from me uh, helped. And so with the external hard drive. The other thing I, I, I wanted to talk about, because it's in the same, these triggers, um, how flow works. You recently wrote a, an article in Forbes about brain training. Do you know which one I'm referring to? Well, I've written a number of them recently. Which one? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> okay. I I'd probably have to pull it up because you just, you talked about how you can basically, here it is. It's uh, cognitive warming. So it was uh, just a week ago. Yeah, we were talking about it. I wrote that with my, uh, my uh, Jamie Wheel, who's yeah. the, uh, the, the co-founder of the Flow Genome Project with me and uh, the executive director. And we were talking about, so one of the things that's action sports is amazing for, and it's, it's really fundamental in business today, is hot decision-making. Decision-making when emotions are involved. Decision-making under pressure, right? And it's tricky. Here's the thing. So our, for that kind of decision-making to go well, first of all, you have to have a predilection for risk. Well, risk, our predilection for risk actually peaks at around 27. 
and decreases after that. And if you actually – Barbara Sahakin at Oxford did this work. Um, maybe she's at Cambridge. I hope I didn't get it wrong. But she's at one of those schools in England that are yeah. very fancy. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and she's a brilliant neuroscientist, and I apologize for screwing it up. But uh, she looked at kind of risk predilections and discovered that um, the only people the, who, who actually you know, maintain their tolerance for risk as they age are both entrepreneurs and action sport athletes, which is really interesting. But it's you need – so hot decision-making is decision-making under pressure, which is what we do all day in this modern world, right? Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to train for because we're not in – in business situations, you're only put in those hot situations, right, when everything's on the line. And if you screw it up, nobody's going to say, oh, you did a great job. You screwed up, but you know, we'll give it to you. you know, may, here's another chance to get it right. Action adventure sports – are, is nonstop hot decision making, right? Every because physical danger is involved. When I ride my downhill mountain bike down a mountain, you know, on any given trail, let's say the average run is two thousand feet, and let's say I make one decision every two feet, and that's probably a very conservative estimate. But if you think about it, I have to make a thousand hot decisions on the way down, and if I make any of them wrong, I'm going to hit the ground at 20 to 30 miles an hour. And even with the body armor, it really hurts, right? Mm -hmm. So no other arena allows you all this practice making hot decisions. And when you actually make hot decisions in a physical environment, when you go to make them in a non-physical environment, right? You go from you know the mountain to the boardroom, the pressure's lower because your body responds to you know the physical threats a little bit more and you suddenly are a lot more relaxed making hot decisions in the boardroom. So we were talking about action adventure sports as training for hot decision making. Yeah, it's great. And I just, I wanted to make sure we covered that because I think, and we'll link to it in the show notes, but I thought it was just such a interesting parallel, especially even when you talked about how, you know, you have those first person shooter video games and I still, I mean, I play modern warfare. I love that game. And I feel like a, I get into flow B, at the end, I'm like kind of amped up. And again, it was just a training ground for, you know, in a, in a smaller way for other things that are going to happen. And your point, you're right. We talk about like you can train hot decision making using first person shooter games. They, mm -hmm. they, they tend to train them up. They're not, it's not quite as extreme as action sports, obviously, but definitely works for it. And of course, you know, there's a very long and deep and thorough literature on flow in video games. In fact, flow is so important to the video game industry that pretty much they know by how much, you know, how much flow a game produces, how well it's going to sell. Wow. It's the number one marker of success. Wow. And now a quick word for one of this week's sponsors. This week's episode is brought to you by Igloo. Igloo is an internet you'll actually like. It's a cloud platform that can help you do your best work. Share files, blog updates, coordinate calendars, and manage projects. It's easy to use and easy to configure, even for the most non-technical of users. And it's built using responsive design, which means that everything you can do at your desk, you can now do on the go, on your phone or tablet. The responsive design is meant to look great on all of your devices. Whether you're a large enterprise stuck using SharePoint or a fast-growing business overwhelmed by apps, create an intranet that matches your brand's look and feel, simplifies how you work, and is accessible on your phone. We've talked about Igloo for weeks. Igloo is absolutely amazing. It's helped streamline the podcast process for Chris and I. You 100% should check it out. Sign up now and try it for free at igloosoftware.com smartpeople. That's igloosoftware.com smartpeople. 
and invite up to 10 of your favorite coworkers to try it with you. And now back to the episode. I didn't realize that, but it makes a lot of sense. And it also points out the games that I currently play, which is very few. Uh, why? And it's because of things like that. So, Well, the interesting thing, where that goes someplace really cool is this. You can say that video games produce flow, and they do. But neurobiologically, neurochemically, they're only most of them are low-grade dopamine loops rather than the full cocktail. Mm. But we're getting better and better and better at the technology, right? And the immersive VR stuff that's coming. So think about how addictive video games are now. And we're going to magnify it a hundredfold. In the, let me, I mean, just to give you a rough example, right? We don't really know how endorphins show up and flow. The body's natural opiates, right? The most commonly produced endorphin in the brain is a hundred times more powerful than medical morphine. What? Yeah. So we are going to have access to, I mean, when we talk about addictive video games or why this stuff is so cool to me and why I really care, I don't really think we need to make Halo any more addictive. (laughs) But I do think there are a lot of people working on flow-based learning video games, right? So we know flow amplifies learning Mm -hmm. and video games that produce flow are totally addictive. So suddenly we have something that is possible. It's a totally addictive, you know, amplified learning because it's on a video game and you can play it on a smartphone or whatever. It's distributed learning pretty soon. Facebook, Google, their efforts to put, you know, kind of worldwide um, Wi-Fi and internet are going to succeed within the next 10 years or so. Everybody's going to be able to have a smartphone. Everybody's going to be able to get access to this stuff. And suddenly you have totally addictive, totally distributed, radically new education. Well, you know, this is, it's such a great transition, actually, unplanned, but worked out great. For I want to talk about Abundance and your book, Abundance, The Future is Better Than You Think, which is based around, I, I mean, you can get an idea from the, the subtitle. Um, I really enjoyed the optimism of the future, uh, you know, the the millennial generation, if you will, a lot of people listening have grown up, myself included, have grown up in a world for the vast majority of our adult and you know teenage years where it was um, war, it was recession, it was um, costs. You know, it's 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 stressful. Things are moving quickly. We don't have as much stability. Um, so to to read your book and see how technology, not exclusively but primarily will create this uh, this future of abundance is fantastic. And I think we kind of just talked about some of the ways that's going to happen. Um, we did. And I mean, you know, and you're right. The core idea at the heart of abundance is that today, right now, there are four emerging forces that give us the power to significantly raise global standards of living over the next 20 to 30 years. And, you know, as you pointed out, technology is one of the forces and more specifically exponential technology and exponential technology uh, refers to technology that is on an exponential growth curve. The most famous example is, of course, Moore's law, right? Moore's law underpins all of computing. Gordon Moore, a couple of years before he founded Intel back in the 60s, noticed that the number of integrated circuits on a transistor was doubling. Every at the time it was 12 months, but now Moore's law has been able to extend it to 18 to 24 months. But on this regular basis, and your computers, computers were getting basically twice as powerful for the same price, right? And which is, by the way, the reason that a cell phone, you know, a smartphone that sits in your pocket is a thousand times cheaper and a million times faster than a supercomputer from the 70s, right? But what has happened is 
we have discovered that any time a technology becomes an information technology, which is basically a fancy way of saying you can represent it in ones and zeros and put it onto a computer, it hops onto this exponential growth curve. So if you look at the technologies on this growth curve, you look at artificial intelligence, robotics, synthetic biology, nanotechnology, and on and on, 3D printing. These are the most powerful technologies in the history of the world. And they're all accelerating exponentially, meaning the same kind of incredible growth we've seen in computers is going to start showing up and is starting to show up in robotics and AI and biology. And you know, to give you just a simple example, biotechnology, right? which is where a lot of the flow hacking technologies sit, so it's a very keen interest area of interest for me, is accelerating currently at five times the speed of Moore's Law. Wow. Which is, you know, truly insane, which is also, you know, one of the things driving Google's longevity project and all these, you know, all these life extension projects that seem so science fiction, we're going to solve death. Um, you know, and, you know, there's people are saying, well, if you, you know, if you can live to be, you know, if you're born today, you could live to see 120, 150, 200. The predictions are ridiculous, and I, and, I, and I try to shy away from that kind of stuff. But I will say, you know, it's not quite as ridiculous when you realize how fast this stuff is actually advancing. Yeah, and I actually recently heard something along these lines where they were talking about if we can get to the point where the, the cell, at a cellular level, we look at it as very simply uh, almost a bit and a bite or, you know, uh, some nano, I mean, I don't know enough about it, but where we can get in there and turn things on and off as if it were just another piece of electronic equipment, another chip carrying data, uh, then, I mean, that's when they explain it like that, that doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility, and yet the results it could yield are crazy. They're, I mean, synthetic biology, which is essentially, you know, what happened in biology is we figured out that the four letters of the genetic code can essentially be represented as binary code. And so synthetic biology allows you to program biology, genetics, like you program computers. And this, you know, this is in abundance, this is a big deal, for example, because we're talking about, we talk about biofuel. So Craig Venter, the guy who kind of cracked open the human genome, is one of his new projects, he's working um, with Exxon, and they're trying to turn algae into biofuel. Algae normally produces a little bit of oil, does this normally. Um, they're trying to get it to produce massive amounts of oil so we can essentially have algae biofarms. And the cool thing about it is what do you feed the algae with? Carbon, carbon dioxide. So mm. you can basically lower global warming and solve the fuel crisis at once, and it's a synthetic biology project. Now, I will say that is one of the few things we do mention in abundance that most of the technologies we actually undersold. Like we, the few predictions we made, we were wrong because they've actually, robotics and AI, for example, have advanced so much faster than we expected. What's going on with genetics is a little slower than we, affect, we expected, but still this stuff is coming very, very quickly. What does that mean for the job market, the future of employment, the future of just our our link between who we are and what we do for a living? Well, the one thing that does seem to be clear is that is going to change drastically in the, in, in the coming years, right? First of all, there are growing concerns about technological unemployment. Robots are coming for our jobs. There's a recent Oxford report that said 45% of the jobs in the United States could be automated within 10 to 20 years. 
most people are terrified. They think these, you know, these jobs are going to go away. That doesn't seem to be what happens, right? What usually happens is, you know, as technology progresses, we create brand new jobs. I think one of the things that's going to happen is actually a lot of the jobs are going to start moving into virtual reality. Um, I think that's one of the places they're going to go. But I think the thing to point out is a lot of the blue collar manual labor jobs that nobody wants to do, those are going to go away. The jobs of the future are going to be much, much more creative and cooperative. Um, and they're going to be kind of man machine hybrid jobs. And so I think, you know, what I like about this is, and a lot of people have been talking about this. I'm not the only one moving forward passion is going to become far, far more important, right? We're going to have a better shot at doing what we truly love. And good news, passion turns out to be a bit of a flow hack. For exactly. the you know, I mean, obvious reason, right? Flow follows focus. We pay more attention to the stuff we believe in, right? This is not hard, but, you know, it does, it does bode well for that. And it, you know, and it's going to be, going to be interesting, but it's going to be a very different job market. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things, because I've thought about this a lot and, and read different things about the fact that we're, we might lose some jobs and, and a lot of these jobs are going to be, uh, you know, turned over to computers and robots and everything. But when you look at it is we also, by standards of 50 years ago, 100 years ago, as you go on, we need less money to achieve the same quality of life. So, you, you know, for example, around the globe, the, the poorest of the poor are really um, getting more resources. And that's strictly almost solely due to technology. So I think, you know, we have to keep in mind that although we, we need our jobs, and we need to continue making money. A lot of it is because we keep consuming more, wanting more, demanding more, better, bigger, faster. Well, one of the things, yeah, I mean, you t for example, the ideas of abundance we can already see this coming into manifestation and information communication technology is, is the great example, right? If you're a Maasai warrior in Kenya and you're on a cell phone, you have access to better communication technologies than the president of the United States did 25 years ago. There you go. <laughs> if, you're, if you're on a smartphone with access to Google, you've got better information than the president did 15 years ago. That's astounding. That's incredible. And in Africa, they did it because they skipped landlines. They, the technology skipped a generation. There are no landlines all over Africa. They went right to cell phones. And the impact has been astounding. And banking, you know, using your cell phone for banking, just to give you an example, um, in Kenya, they ran a pilot project. They found that the average family that, you know, could suddenly use their smartphone or their cell phone for banking income went up five to 30%. I know that's a big gap in between and I'm not sure what accounts for it but that's what those were the numbers so you're starting to see all this with information and communication technology we did an abundance we did a calculation where we looked at uh, a 2011 smartphone and we counted up all the stuff that you would have paid for in the 80s and early 90s that now comes free on your cell phone so everything from like an Encyclopedia Britannica, suddenly you don't need it. You've got Wikipedia on your phone to a stereo system, an iPod, and blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on and on. It was almost a million dollars worth of tech that comes absolutely standard on any smartphone, right? We, this, we, we're taught in, in, in my, we have a follow-up book, Peter and I, to Abundance called Bold that comes out in February. And we talk about this as, the, as this kind of 
six Ds, um, what happens when technologies become exponential, one of them is they dematerialize, right? After technologies digitize, they dematerialize, right? And we saw this, the great exam, and, and this can be massively disruptive. Kodak, right, went bankrupt because they were in the world film business. And suddenly, you know, film didn't matter. It came free on your smartphone. Steven, I, first of all, thank you so much for being generous with your time. I know you're busy with the re-release of Abundance. Um, before we let you go, wanted to see, you know, we're going to link to obviously your books um, on, on the show notes, but where else, I mean, you write in a lot of places. Where do you want to direct our listeners who are interested in what you write in flow in all these types of things? So there's a bunch of places, as you pointed out. StephenCotler.com is kind of all things me. Flow, you want to send people to the flowgenomeproject.co. That's .co. So flow genome is G-E-N-O-M-E project.co. And the cool thing about the Flow Genome Project website is um, you can go there and there is a free flow profile. So oh, as wow. is probably clear by now, different people have different entrance points into flow, right? There's altruism, there's risk-taking, there's creativity, blah, blah, blah. Well, this is a free profile anybody can take, and it will direct you, it will give you an area, you know, one of four personality types. These are the areas you can start looking, hunting more flow in your life. That's amazing. I'm actually heading there right now. That's amazing. I can't wait. Again, Stephen, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you soon. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Stephen Kotler. You can find his book, The Rise of Superman, Decoding the Science of Ultimate Human Performance, on Amazon or at your local bookstore. If you decide to purchase through Amazon, please don't forget to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. It's an easy way to support the show. It's at no cost to you, and we truly do appreciate it. You probably heard Chris mention it during the intro, but it bears repeating. We finally fixed our RSS feed. So if you are one of those people that subscribed to our old RSS feed and haven't been seeing updates of episodes, please check whatever app you use to download our podcast because those should be updated now and you should see the most recent episodes through today's 209th episode. You shouldn't have to do anything on your end. All the episodes should be coming to you uninterrupted from now on. So don't worry about missing anything Smart People Podcast related. If you could do us a huge favor, it would be awesome if you head over to iTunes and Stitcher and leave a rating, review, and comment over there. Those ratings and reviews really do help out the show, helps us book guests for the show, and it just gets us better visibility on iTunes. If you'd like to reach out to the show, please email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or shoot us a message on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. That's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed. Please stay tuned. We've got some great episodes coming up, and we will see you all next week. Thanks to Igloo for sponsoring this week's episode of Smart People Podcast. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. It gives you the flexibility to get your work done how you want, where you want, and on whatever device you want. It's built with easy-to-use apps like file sharing, calendars, social news feeds, and task management. Igloo is the cloud platform that can help you do your best work. Get your free trial today at igloosoftware.com smartpeople and invite up to 10 of your favorite coworkers.